And we're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. When Shannon and I lived in Dallas as a young couple uh, while I was going to seminary, we got to know a man from our church. His name was Gordon. Gordon was 80-something, early 80s at the time, a retired pastor. He had planted and pastored somewhere around eight or nine churches in the course of his career, and now uh, he, when he retired, he moved to Dallas. He got involved with the church we were going to, and uh, he is now 98 years old, uh, still has a great deal of energy, which doesn't surprise me. And the reason is because even in his 80s, Gordon was one of these guys, one of these octogenarians who had the energy and enthusiasm of a man 50 years his junior. He loved to meet people. He loved to talk to people. He's the only man I've ever actually met who could play a saw with a bow. Uh, He had a musical saw. So you would hear Gordon would come to parties and he could play hymns on his saw. Uh, He could play songs on his saw. You felt like you were in 19th century Appalachia when you were around Gordon. I loved it. And uh, he actually recently gave his saw to somebody else. He got to the place where he could not play anymore. But uh, Gordon was this man who went to our church. And what I remember about him besides his energy and his enthusiasm was this was a man who loved to share Jesus with people who did not know him. Uh, One evening we accompanied a group from our church to a local homeless shelter to minister to the men and women who were there. And Gordon came with us and we gave a service. Uh, They had asked me to come to share the gospel with these men to give a short gospel presentation. We gave a short worship service, uh, talked to the men and women there. And then our group from our church went to go eat dinner after we served at this homeless shelter. And we sat down at this restaurant, it was Whataburger or something like that, and all of us sat down after we ordered, began to eat. After about five minutes, somebody said, hey, where's Gordon? He never showed up to the table. And so a couple of people out of concern for him in his older age went to go find Gordon, make sure he was okay. Came back after a couple of minutes and said, Gordon's okay. He's at the front of the Whataburger line sharing the gospel with the woman who is giving him his hamburger. And sure enough, there he was, people lined up behind him, and as she is handing him his food, he's explaining how much God loves her and how Jesus died for her, and the people behind her, you know, uh, are waiting for their food, and yet Gordon is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that moment has been burned into my memory for a couple of reasons. One, because I still to this day am intrigued to know how that conversation began, how he made that transition. You know, if you think Whataburger's good, let me tell you about food for your soul, right? (laughs) I don't know how he did it. I always wondered how he made those transitions, but there's another reason that that moment is still burned into my brain, and it is this, because for me, once we got to that restaurant, our ministry for the day was over. See, we had already gone and done the ministry that we were scheduled to do that day at the homeless shelter, so now we're just hanging out. For Gordon, he was an entirely in a different frame of mind. For him, it was never over. He was a man who lived on mission, and unlike I often do, Gordon saw the people around him always with the eyes of Jesus as men and women made in the image of God who need to know the one who made them, the one who loves them, the one who gave his son to die and rise again so they can have life. And so Gordon went through his life 
on mission. If we're honest, most of us, if not all of us, struggle with seeing the people around us as Jesus sees the people around us. Uh, Most of us struggle when we are in line at the grocery store, for example, to see the four or five people in front of us as people. Instead, we see them as what? Obstacles, right? And in fact, we plan when we get to the front of the store, which line has the fewest obstacles so we can get through, don't we? We have a hard time seeing our neighbors often as human beings who need to know Jesus. Uh, We see their garage doors go up and come down. We see their yards mowed, unmowed. We see their kids maybe unruly. And we see them perhaps as obstacles to our goal of a peaceful neighborhood. And so we have a hard time seeing people as Jesus sees them. And yet, as you look throughout the scripture over and over and over again, particularly in the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus was a man who saw people with the love of God because, of course, he is God in the flesh. And so Jesus, even often when he was tired, when it was the end of a day, when he was hungry, you will see these statements by the writers of the Gospel about how much Jesus loved the people around him. And so often it will be the very end of a long day of ministry and Jesus will still look around and like you see in Matthew chapter 9 you'll see a statement like this seeing the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd something in Jesus heart and mind always felt compassion for men and women and so he would continue to heal continue to feed continue to help and teach the word of God even long beyond the point at which his disciples were ready to go home. If you and I desire to be men and women who share the good news of Jesus with those around us, what I've been convicted by as I've looked at John 4 this week is that there's really not a magical formula. But what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus simply loved his father and loved people. And because of that, he was motivated to engage in the lives of those around him. And that led to conversations where he could tell people, here is what you really need in your life. And it's not physical food, physical water, although you need those things for sustenance. What you really need is me. And Jesus' eyes were always open and he was always on mission. We really live in a culture of isolation and hurry and selfishness, don't we? If I'm honest, I'm often in my own bubble. So uh, when I get home from work, the first thing on my mind is not ordinarily engaging or talking to those neighbors who live around me. When I go to the doctor's office or the store or wherever it may be, the first thing on my mind is not whether the people around me have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The first thing on my mind is often, how can I complete the task that I came here to complete? And in my mind, the task is to buy the groceries or at a restaurant to get the food. And so the people around me often are either means to an end or obstacles in my path. And if things aren't happening quickly enough, what do we do? Facebook, right? It's easy. There's people on the screen right there. I can control them with a scroll, I can, right? And so we isolate and pull back. But what we see with Jesus is he always moves forward toward men and women who need to know him. The launch 
of a new Campus of Grace Bible Church is a great opportunity for us in this room to begin to think about how we can extend the good news of Jesus Christ to this community. Just last year alone, if you look at demographic surveys, somewhere between two and 3,000 people moved into College Station, many of them right in these neighborhoods around here. In about two weeks, hundreds of elementary school children are going to come into this room, which will look like a cafeteria again when they walk in, many of whom have never met Jesus Christ. Their parents have never met Jesus Christ, and they literally live right next door as do many of us. And so as we begin the launch of a new campus, it's a great opportunity for us to look then at how does Jesus see people and how does Jesus offer the good news to people in a way that is winsome and gracious but also filled with truth. And so that's why we're going to look at John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4 is the famous story of when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. And what we'll see in John chapter 4 is how Jesus takes a risk to engage with this woman, to talk with her. He takes a pretty big cultural and relational risk to move outside the typical comfort zones of those of a Jewish male teacher in his day. And he points her to spiritual issues and then points her to him as the solution to those spiritual issues. And the challenge for you and me walking out is as we go to work this week, as we go to school this week, as we go about our day to the restaurants and the grocery stores, will you and I see people as Jesus sees them? By the power of his spirit who lives in us and engage people with the good news of the gospel. All right, so we're going to look at John chapter 4. I'm going to start this morning in verse 3. John chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so the first thing that we notice is Jesus uh, pursues people pretty boldly. Let me highlight a little bit about the situation here. Jesus has been in Galilee, and let me show you a map. Hopefully you can see that from the back, but if you can't, Galilee is up here at the top of the map. It's the red area right at the top. Judea is the large green area at the bottom. Uh, You see Jerusalem kind of right there center on the east side of Judea. So Jesus needs to get from Galilee to Judea. Now you see what is right in the middle is the big purple area. That's Samaria. So it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now what's interesting is that technically he did not have to pass through Samaria. Because in fact, there was another way that often strict religious Jews would go if they needed to get from Galilee to Judea, and that is they would actually go around Samaria. They would go across the Jordan River, go over into Decapolis and Perea, and then come back around into into Judea to avoid having to walk into Samaria. The reason for this, as the text tells us, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You have probably heard this before, but Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. 
That is because the Jews saw the Samaritans as both ethnically and religiously half-breeds. The Samaritans were of mixed blood, most likely, from the northern tribes of Israel who had been conquered by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians came in and intermarried with the Israelites, and now you have these descendants who are not ethnically pure, but more importantly, they're not religiously pure. And that comes out in the text. Later on, when the woman at the well asks Jesus about this religious dispute where the Samaritans had a temple at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. So they were viewed also as idolaters and heretics because they worshiped God outside of Jerusalem. So Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, and yet Jesus chooses to go straight through Samaria because his mindset is not typically on these cultural constraints, but instead he knows he has a divine appointment. And I think when John says he had to go through Samaria, I think it's because of what Jesus talks about later, that his food and drink is to do the will of the one who sent him. The father sent him right through. And so Jesus goes through Samaria. He sits by Jacob's well, and this woman arrives. It's the sixth hour. It is noon, which is not the typical time, actually, to come and draw water. Usually you would come either early in the morning or early in the evening once the sun had gone down, because at noon it's pretty hot in Israel, especially in the summer. Uh, This woman comes, though, at noon. She comes by herself, perhaps an indication that she is a bit of a loner in this society. She comes to a well that is a mile away from the town she lives in, when archaeologists know there was a well much closer. But she travels far away by herself at an off time of the day to be alone. And Jesus begins to speak to her. And she's astonished, not only because she's a Samaritan, but also because she's a woman. A strict religious Jew would not have spoken in public to a woman. In fact, some rabbis said you're not even supposed to talk in public to your wife, much less to someone else's wife, much less to an unmarried woman with a sketchy background. Jesus strikes up a conversation. To pile on, wells were also kind of places where you picked up women. I don't know how better to say it. Isaac and Jacob, remember, both met their wives where? At a well. It was standard. It's kind of like being in the grocery store next to the apples or something, right? You come here often? Haven't seen you near the Honeycrisps before, right? Can you hand me one, right? It could have been very misconstrued. Wells were places that a religious teacher would not have talked to a woman. And yet Jesus initiates this conversation and takes a huge risk. Why does he do it? Again, because he is there on mission from his father and he knows what is more important than his own comfort, what is more important than the cultural boundaries of his kinsmen, is this woman who needs to know him. And so he says, give me a drink. Most of us know that almost anything worth doing in our lives requires some degree of risk, don't we? Most of us know that if you want to do something significant, it's going to require a degree of risk, right? So if you start a business, you may have to invest some money. That requires some risk. Uh, Men, if you are married in here at some point in your uh, relationship with the woman who is now your wife, you likely took a risk, right? You either asked her out without knowing how she felt, or you told her how you felt without knowing how she felt, and you did not know how she'd respond. You took a risk. Why'd you do it? Because there was a potential payoff. 
uh, women, you took a risk as well. You thought maybe, maybe he's not as weird on the inside as he looks on the outside. And so I'll go out with him because there's a potential payoff. When it benefits us, we take risks. What's fascinating about how Jesus responds to this woman is there's no benefit from a human perspective for Jesus. The only thing that could happen is misunderstanding and trouble. And yet he does it. Why? Because he loves this woman. And he knows this. She is dying of a spiritual thirst that cannot be quenched apart from him. That is true of the majority of men and women that you and I interact with on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, that they are dying of a spiritual thirst that cannot be quenched apart from a relationship with their Savior. And so the challenge as we look at Jesus is will you and I, even in the middle of a very isolated culture, will we take a risk to pursue people, to notice people, to look up from our phones, to look up from our routine? And begin conversations and begin relationships and friendships even when it's uncomfortable. To see men and women begin the process of knowing Jesus. Jesus pursues people boldly. And then we see as things go on that the plot thickens just a little bit. Look at verse 10. After she asks, why are you talking to me? Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus not only pursues her boldly and engages with her, but he also works to see spiritual realities in everyday situations. Now, I really tried to find a shorter way to say that this week, but I couldn't. What I'm saying is this, Jesus sees what is happening in front of him. It is on the surface of it, a very mundane, everyday situation that happens, if not every day, maybe even multiple times a day. A woman comes to the well to get water. Remember, they had no tap water. They had to go to the well to get water. This happened all the time. And yet Jesus looks beyond that and he sees this spiritual reality that her real thirst is for him. And so what he begins to do after engaging with her is he directs her toward the source of life. He directs her toward the reality of her world, which is that what she needs is a spiritual water, which we'll expound on a minute. She needs a spiritual water more than she needs physical water. She needs water that will live within her, and as Jesus says, it will spring up forever and ever unto eternal life. He tells her, you don't know who you're talking to. In fact, Jesus steers her and he says, the reality is that I don't need to ask you for water. You need to ask me for life. Now, the woman does not understand what Jesus is saying, and you see that in her responses. She says, where are you going to get this living water? Now, living water was a common expression used for not 
necessarily a spiritual type of water, but, but often just for flowing water. Water that was in a river or a stream as opposed to stagnant water like there was in a well. So this woman gets in her mind, look, this guy knows about a river or a stream or some sort of flowing water uh, that he can give me that would mean I don't have to come here all the time. So she goes, where do you get this? She goes, even Jacob, the great patriarch, he had to build a well here and dig down to get the water. Are you greater than Jacob? And her belief is, no, of course you can't be greater than Jacob. Now, John just kind of leaves the statement there because, of course, he's greater than Jacob. He's the son of God. Jesus instead says, look, if you come and drink this water all the time, you're just going to get thirsty again, aren't you? You know that. You're going to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. You're going to get thirsty. You drink the water that I give you, it will become within you a spring of water that will bubble up to eternal life. Jesus turns the conversation from the mundane and the everyday into spiritual realities. And he is, in fact, using Old Testament imagery to do this. If you look through the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that there is actually imagery of God as a fountain of water who gives his people life. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, I am the fountain of living water, and yet they're trying to quench their thirst everywhere but me. Isaiah says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's a prophecy of the time when the Messiah would come. You will draw water from the wells of salvation and he will give you life that comes from me. Uh, Jesus will also use this imagery a few chapters later in the book of John. John chapter 7, Jesus stood up at the feast of booths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this to this Samaritan woman, what you really need are rivers of living water that come from the power of my spirit that lives inside everyone who believes in me. And the spirit of God imparts eternal life that cannot be taken away whether you come to this well or not. Jesus here is telling her, I am the fountain of living water that lasts forever, and those who come to me will not die. Now, of course, she doesn't understand all of this at the time. But what's masterful about the way Jesus speaks with her is he steers the conversation away from what she sees in front of her face and what he sees in front of his face to the spiritual realities behind the everyday situations. You and I have a hard time often looking behind what we see. You and I have a hard time directing people to spiritual truth. We don't see what we're not looking for. I read a story a number of years ago about an experiment set up by a reporter with the Washington Post. Here's what he did. He went down into a a subway station at rush hour when people were coming and going from the trains, and he set up a violin player in the subway station. And this violin player put a hat down or a bucket and began to play. Now, what nobody knew was that this violin player was a man named Joshua Bell. Uh, Joshua Bell is one of the premier concert violinists in the world. Uh, In fact, uh, ordinarily... 
he sells out auditoriums at hundreds of dollars a ticket. He makes more than $100,000 per hour for playing his violin. The violin he was playing on was a Stradivarius worth three and a half million dollars as he was standing in the subway. Uh, Over the course of the next hour or so, seven people stopped. One person recognized him. He made $32.17 in that bucket. Nobody saw what they weren't looking for, which was that there was maybe the greatest concert violinist alive right in front of them. But they had something else to do. Jesus pauses instead, and he sees the realities of the situation. Despite the fact that he's tired, despite the fact that he's hungry, despite the fact that he's thirsty, despite the fact that there are social barriers, he sees this woman in need of him. And so he directs her toward the spiritual realities of the situation. You see that with Jesus consistently, that he looks beyond the mundane to see the eternal. C.S. Lewis says this, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And Jesus sees with those types of eyes. And he's going to call the disciples to see with the same type of eyes. Eyes that recognize that nobody around us at our office, at the places we shop, in our neighborhoods, none of those men and women are simply what we see on the surface. And we have an opportunity as we engage in their lives then to direct them to what their real need is, which is him. So Jesus pursues people boldly. He sees spiritual realities in everyday situations. Thirdly, he responds to her with grace and truth together. Look at verses 15 to 18. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, how disconcerting would this be? You're talking to somebody, and you're talking about water, and all of a sudden you're talking now about your sex life. How uncomfortable. How challenging. And yet what Jesus does, again, is masterful. He expects from somebody who does not know him a bit of a mess. And there's two ways in which he could have responded, ways that I think we often do respond when we are confronted with those who do not know Christ. One way is he could have said, you're terrible and I'm leaving, I'm going to another well. Or he could have said, you know what, that's okay. We all do that stuff. Probably not that bad anyway. Jesus does neither. He simply lays the truth out there. You've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. Of course she's living in adultery. Of course her life is sinful. Of course it's a mess. You get the picture that this is a woman who is just deeply confused. She's not so much rebellious or angry at God. She's just made a huge mess of her life. And Jesus responds with this balance of both grace and truth because he knows that 
those men and women who have not yet been filled with the living water of his spirit will have lives that are filled with mess, that are filled with sin. And his responsibility, what he's been sent there by his father to do is to direct her to the source of life. And so he responds with both grace and truth. When you were a baby and even a toddler, you made a lot of messes. I hate to tell you that. But you made messes on the table. You made messes on the wall. You made messes in your diaper. You made messes everywhere, right? Those of you who have babies and toddlers know you follow them around cleaning up messes, right? That's about 50% of your workflow throughout the day, isn't it? And yet, and yet, if you're grown up now, the odds are good that your parents have not recently reminded you of that, have they? Hopefully not. Hopefully last time you ate with them, they didn't say, hey, listen, when you were two, you smeared jelly on my favorite dress. So pay up, okay? I'm still angry. I'm angry that you dropped chocolate on the floor, that you fed your dinner to the dog, that you did all of those things that babies and toddlers do. Why? Because they expect that of a baby or a toddler. Now, if you still did it, we'd have problems, right? At your level of maturity, if you still did that at the table, if you still grabbed the jelly or the peanut butter or whatever and smeared it over everybody and ran away laughing, we'd go, okay, you have moved beyond the point in your life where that's even remotely cool. But when you're a child, you act like a child. Jesus expects that this woman who is broken, who is sinful, who is separated from her father, who is immature, he expects a mess. And so he lays it out there. And, you, you, you know, one of the questions when you come to this passage is, why does Jesus bring this up at all? Right? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's, in fact, prone to all kinds of misunderstanding. He's alone with this woman at a well. He's talking about all of these men that she's been with. It's a deeply uncomfortable subject. Why does he do it? Here's why. Because, again, he needs her to know that she is seeking to quench her spiritual thirst in all the wrong spots. And so she is entering into relationship after relationship after relationship with all of these men, hoping that they will fill this void she has in this spiritual thirst. And Jesus highlights it. What you need is to know me. And so he responds with this beautiful mix of grace and truth. And I would call us to do the same. I think one of the great dilemmas that we face as Christians in a culture that is moving ever farther away from the truth of God's word is that we are tempted to respond in one of those two inappropriate ways. Either we get angry or we withdraw and we separate ourselves from those that we perceive as sinners or at least sinners of a certain type, whether there's a certain type of immorality or sexual sin that we hate, we pull away and we get angry and we condemn from a distance. That is one error. The other is we simply step to the other side and we say, you know what, it's okay. God's probably cool with whatever you do because he loves you. And we don't ever speak into the lives of those who have this deep spiritual thirst. But what we see Jesus doing is he stands right in the middle of those two extremes and he says, you are a sinner and God loves you. And I'm here to proclaim that message. And he speaks with her face to face, eye to eye, and enters into her world without apologizing for the truth and without shaming her for her sin. 
Romans 5.8, I think, is one of the most relevant passages on this topic. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, for each of us in this room, that's what God has done for us. His own son died for us, not after we had everything together, but while we were yet sinners. And yet Jesus died for us and rose again and calls us to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God doesn't simply say, everything you're doing is okay. Instead, he says, no, the sin that you're engaged in will drive you away from me forever. And yet he provided a solution in Jesus and he draws near and he says, all who trust in me can have life. And so Jesus responds with this perfect mix of grace and truth, expecting that there's going to be a bit of a mess. Uh, A few years ago, I was on a sabbatical to do some research about various college ministries around the country. And so I called a number of churches with large college ministries and asked if I could talk with their college pastors and set up appointments. And one of the churches I called, I was surprised to find out that the college pastor was somebody I went to high school with. And I was surprised that this particular man was the college pastor because in high school, frankly, he had been a mess. He was a party guy. He was engaged uh, from the rumors I heard and all kinds of immorality. The things he said, the things he did, did not match the lifestyle of one who knew Jesus Christ. Uh, But I thought, okay, I just want to go and meet with him, hear what he's doing, hear his story. And so we sat down, we began to talk. And after we were talking for about an hour, he goes, I'll bet that when you heard I was the college pastor here, you thought, what's that guy doing as the pastor at this church? I was like, no, no. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I thought, I th- you know, I'm not too surprised. And actually I did. I told him uh, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Uh, so I'd love to hear your story. And he said, here's the deal. And he began to tell me about his life and about what he lacked growing up from his own parents and his own background and how that led him into this life where he reached out for everything but Jesus. And he said, I just could not fill that spiritual thirst. I couldn't quench it until I heard the message that God is a good father and I'm loved by him and he gave his son who died and rose for me and he said it took a while but it changed my life. He said all I want to do is invest my life in helping others know about what he did for me. And it was one of those moments that sometimes we have like Jesus, like you see with this woman, where those who seem the farthest away often are desperately reaching out for the truth. And so as we drive again through our neighborhoods, as we go to our places of work, as we go around town, engage with men and women, pray with them and recognize that all of that mess that we often see is a sign of a deeper spiritual thirst. And what Jesus does is he talks her through all of these issues in her life then, is he masterfully directs her back to himself as the answer. Now, of course, you and I aren't called to direct people to ourselves, but instead to Jesus. Verse 19, the woman said to to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, you know stuff that I wish you didn't know. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. Notice, let's change the subject. We'll talk about mountains for a minute. 
Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews are right about the mountain, but that's beside the point. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, look, the issue is not fundamentally whether you're a Samaritan, whether you worship in this mountain, whether you worship in Jerusalem, although Jerusalem is the right spot, by the way. But the issue is fundamentally, do you know God through the power of his spirit? And eventually, everybody who knows him will be called to worship him, not in a place, but through a person. And then a light bulb seems to go on. She says, oh yeah, I've heard the Messiah is coming. So maybe he'll come and he'll resolve this whole dispute. And Jesus says, I am that one. And in the midst of the objections and the questions and the tangents she continues to raise, Jesus continues to draw her back to the reality that her thirst will only be quenched in him. And she directs her right back to the real source of life, which is him. And so what I love is uh, the last time we really see this woman in the passage, she goes to tell all of her friends back in Sychar about Jesus. And you know what she does? John makes a point of telling us this. She leaves her water pot. The whole reason she came there in the first place, she has now forgotten about it. You know why? Because the implication is she doesn't really need that water. She needs Jesus. And all of these Samaritan men, some of whom had probably used and abused this woman, some of whom had cast her out, They come to hear this man speak, and they believe. But before they come, Jesus has this conversation as well with the disciples. And the parallels between Jesus' conversation with the woman and his conversation with the disciples are somewhat striking. If you look at uh, verse 27, at this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Uh, Probably they're used to Jesus kind of doing some weird stuff. So they just sort of let it go, all right? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, "Uh, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In other words, Jesus says this. You guys are really worried about the bread. This isn't the first or last time that the disciples will do this. In the midst of these spiritual moments, they are always looking around going, what will we eat? What will you eat? What will they eat? Where is the food? If you think about the feeding of the 5,000, they come 
and they're, they're going, we can't feed these. And, and Jesus goes, just, just bring me the baskets. All right, I'll divide it up. There's the, there's the food, you, okay? Spiritual realities are more significant. And they're confused about the food, and Jesus says this, the, the food that I eat is to do the will of God. See, just like the woman at the well, the disciples don't understand what Jesus' program is. And he tells them, the harvest is already here. The fields are white for harvest. You want spiritual food. Go out and glean from the fields. And I've always imagined that as Jesus is saying this, they look up at the fields that probably separated the space between this well and Sychar, and they look up into the fields, and here come all these Samaritan men. And Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest. Somebody else did the sowing. That was Jesus. And you get to reap. Here they come. Will you keep your eyes open? for the fact that God is always working, his spirit is always working, and you know what you and I get to do. We enter into that work, and we simply build on the work that God has done through Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit. So he says, men, look up. Engage with those who need to know me. And so these Samaritan men arrive, and they hear from Jesus. Jesus always simply directs back to himself. And again, as we talk to people and interact with people and converse with those in our neighborhoods and workplaces and all around in our lives and our spheres of influence. Continually draw them back to Jesus Christ. Come back to some moment where we share the gospel, that there is life found only in him and that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so we can have life forever. And it can begin right now when the Spirit indwells those who've trusted in him. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, that is the message that is preeminent among what we preach here at Grace Bible Church. That all who trust in Jesus can have eternal life. And for those that know him, our task as we begin Creekside, our task throughout the week is to share that living water with those who don't know him. Let me give four very practical applications as we close. First of all, see people. Look around. Again, look up from your phone. When you go home, get off the computer, turn off the TV, walk out into your neighborhood, see people as the spiritual beings they are made to be. Notice people. Secondly, pray. Pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ, that you'd have an opportunity to engage them with the good news. Third, engage. <coughs> Strike up a conversation. You don't have to bring a tract. You don't have to start with something overtly biblical. Just begin to engage in the lives of those men and women that you know. If you go to the same restaurant, perhaps for lunch, get to know the staff. Get to know those who serve you. You go to the same line at the grocery store every time. Have you ever looked up to talk to the checker or the bagger or the manager who's standing by? You work at the same place probably every day, and there are people around you that maybe you've never even spoken with. Have you ever thought of having them to your home and engaging with them and beginning to build a relationship? So see, pray, engage, and then fourthly, share. Share the good news. If you feel ill-equipped, we have opportunities to help equip you. If you're not sure how to go about sharing the gospel, we can 
help. Come talk with me. Come talk with Chris or one of our elders. But the message is simple, that you can know God and have eternal life through his son, Jesus, who died to take the penalty for your sin on himself and rose again to defeat sin and death. And if you trust in him, you'll have eternal life. And so share the good news so that those who do not know him in our spheres of influence can come to know him, to know the one who will give them living water that will last forever, that will spring up to eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word, and we are grateful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. I thank you for the example of Jesus, who was willing to risk his own comfort and even risk his own reputation for the good news that he offers eternal life. I pray that we would look around and notice those in our lives who need you and share with them that there is a living water that will quench all of their thirst forever and that those who trust in Jesus need not fear death, need not fear sin, need not fear Satan, but instead have an eternal shelter in you. Father, thank you for all you have done for us, and we pray this week, empower our hands and our feet for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.